Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for SpeechTherapyPD.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that, <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to include all the pod courses? Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that we have four. We have first we have bite. One. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, and in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. And don't let it autocorrect you to B-Y-T-E because it does, it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo! <laughs> Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson. MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's topic falls in the fed and fun categories, and I am super geeking out because this is a topic that is way past due in my humble opinion. Today, we are talking all things medications. Okay, so here's the backstory. Once upon a lifetime ago, I was a clinical fellow back in Newport News, Virginia, 
And if you're from that neck of the woods, then you may have heard it called bad news. Ha ha ha. Bad news VA. Hoy, that takes a girl back. All right. So anyway, there was a dynamite lecture series that came into town by Tom Franchesny. And I hope I'm saying that right. There's a lot of consonant vowel combos there. Tom Franchesny, MSCCC SLP. And it was all about the Fraser Free Water Protocol and the impact of GERD on dysphagia. Y'all, it was amazing. To this day, that sweet man in his stylish purple velour three-piece suit with a silk cravat had even had like a little like pearl button pin right in the middle. That will always be my favorite live lecture that I have like ever seen. He was brilliant as he was kind. So do yourself a solid and go check out one of his lectures. Now, outside of his classroom, there was a lovely little table with all these little books for sale. And one of them was a little red book that I have since dubbed as the Drugs and Dysphagia Bible. Um, Pardon the blasphemy. It is called Drugs and Dysphagia. So I picked it up. Y'all, that one little red book changed my stars and opened my mind to an entirely new world of how medications can actually induce a dysphagia or cause errors downstream that can result in diminished PO intake. Now, if y'all haven't heard of that book or the new one, then do yourself and your evidence-based practice a solid and go pick it up. So fast forward a few years, and I came across the amazing Lisa Young Milliken, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, F-N-A-P, and C-D-P. And oh my heavens, what is fine she is. This Lone Star Lady has dedicated her life to pursuing best practice for medically complex patients, and in her pursuit, she's become a passionate advocate about the impact that medications can have on a person and their ability for PO. Now, I'm not quite sure how I did it, but I managed to sweet talk her and convince her into bringing her knowledge and her amazing spark to First Bite, and y'all, here she is. So Lisa, thank you so much. Like I have so many questions. I feel like that girl with the brain on fire movie, because like, that's kind of the pace that I'm keeping internally right now. But like, my first one is what in the world do all, does all that alphabet soup mean after your name? <laughs> <laughs> You're so funny. Well, of course the first is just the masters in speech pathology and I'm kind of old. So in the eighties, when I got my masters, we only had master of arts back then. Anyway, the other letters is um, I'm a fellow of the National Academy of Practice, which is an amazing organization that focuses on interprofessional practice and working with professionals just across the continuum to maximize the abilities of a client by looking at how we can all help rather than looking through a single set of eyes of our own profession alone. So it takes a team. That's what I call that. Yeah. And then the CDP is I'm a certified dementia practitioner. Traditionally, I have mostly worked with adults and geriatrics. And then a few years ago, I really started teaching quite a bit on the effect of medications on their condition, on their function. Uh, I've worked with CFs for 30 years and i Now teach them to go first look at their meds and you'll learn a lot more about them because that's just as important as the conditions that you've seen, the diagnoses and conditions that you've seen on their chart. And and then just, just recently I've realized that the medications for infants, especially those before, you know, even before they're four or five, 
is very similar to the medications that I've studied for so many years in the older people because of their completely different kidney and liver function. Their blood plasma is different. Their, uh, their body is just different from the older child and adult. So the younger child has become fascinating to see how these different medications affect them too. So it's kind of full circle what we do and how we can help each other and how we can consider medications as a big part of practice. And I just wish I knew when I first was in grad school or first got out of grad school about medications as much as I now do. And yet I'm still learning so much about medications, but it's, it's really important. Anyway, that's what my letters are. Oh, there, um, one, I've never heard of the National Academy of Practitioners. So I just did a Google search and now I will have to spend at least an evening looking into all of that. That's amazing. <laughs> but, um, you, you absolutely summed it up. I, when I first started, nobody in graduate school or, or undergraduate had even brought to my attention that, um, medications could impact a body and actually have a negative effect on their PO intake. And it wasn't until that lecture. I mean, I was a CF, but when you're a CF, I mean, heavens to Betsy's, you're just trying to figure out like the computer system or like navigate personalities <laughs> or like, God forbid you work in a heavy female dominated department. And then everybody starts cycling together because I have been there and done that and remember that like just that parameter in and of itself. But, um, somebody out there listening is like, Oh yeah, I get that. (laughs) But then there's medications and how, and the problem that I faced was I thought I knew medications, which is hysterical because I don't have a freaking clue. I have like, I'm barely scratching the surface. But, you know, I mean, I would see a lot of like GERD medicines when I first started working with pediatrics and I'm like, oh, great. They have GERD. But then I would get more and more complex patients. And then I started getting cardiac patients and I'm like, I have no idea. And then one mother, I distinctly remember her saying, yeah, we started sending medications and I don't really remember what it's supposed to do, but it's called Lasix. And, you know, the baby had Down syndrome and had at least one hole in the heart. And I was like, Hmm, you have a four month old on Lasix. That's pretty profound. <laughs> like, but had I not had at least a scratching of the surface, I would be afraid of what my recommendations would have been had I not had that, at least that limited knowledge. So, um, yes. So thank you for coming aboard today and doing all these things. I am grateful for you. (laughs) Okay. So let's go into it. What are some of the most typical drug classes that may result in adverse effects in children, especially those which may affect a child's swallowing or cognitive skills as we work with them in like a therapy setting, either home health or outpatient clinic or like, you know, a little clinic setting? Sure. Well, you know, I've learned it's really helpful to understand which medicines have something called an anticholinergic property. So if I'm teaching this in a live class, I'll have everybody repeat after me, anticholinergic. Yep, anticholinergic. There's a lot of drug classes which have this property. So it's not a drug class in itself. It's a characteristic of a medication, and I'll just describe in a minute what it's doing to the body. 
but it's so important because of the side effects a medication may have once it has this anticholinergic property. So the first thing that comes to our mind is speech pathologists working with swallowing is that they have decreased saliva production. So they'll have dry mouth or xerostomia. They could also have blurred vision, dry eyes, constipation, dizziness, cognitive problems, drowsiness, memory problems, decreased sweating, decreased uh, ability to go to the bathroom to urinate. And so if because there's so many classes, there's like 400 different drugs with anticholinergic properties, and you could look it up. Is this an anticholinergic? Then it tells you immediately, I'm dealing with decreased saliva. I'm dealing with drowsiness. I'm dealing with, you know, those things that I mentioned. So it's important to know that, you know, what falls under this this uh, property, which drug classes fall under that. And it's things like antidepressants, which we may see children on. Antihistamines, if they have allergies, muscle relaxants, antivertigos, which may not be as predominant in young children, antipsychotics, antiemetics, if there's um, if they're nausea, if they have nausea, which we see as a side effect of another med, antispasmodics, you know, which we see with the GI tract, antidiarrheal meds, all of those, a lot of meds that have anti in front of them may have anticholinergic properties. So if you only learn one thing today, learn how to go look up, does it have an anticholinergic property? And you would think, okay, we've got decreased saliva. We've got, you know, all those other things we're going to have to deal with. So if they have that property, they block the neurotransmitter acetylcholine at the synapse level in the central nervous system, as well as in the peripheral nervous system. And then they inhibit the parasympathetic nerve impulses. So in addition to those things we just talked about, the um, the dry eyes, blurred vision, dry mouth, constipation, uh, maybe even some gastrointestinal problems. They could also, because of blocking this neurotransmitter acetylcholine, they could have impaired verbal learning of a new material and declarative memory. So even though we're talking more about swallowing and eating and feeding patterns and how they're affected, we always have to take into account the cognitive abilities as well, especially if they're a young child, we're trying to teach them new strategies that they may not be able to learn yet um, because of this this cognitive effort. So um, just keeping all of that in mind, it's also important to know that sometimes, and really many, many times from a research standpoint, it's not reported um, to be, to be, uh, if it's not reported to be tracked in the clinical setting that, oh, this, they could have a memory impairment or not be learning the strategies we're teaching them because of the anticholinergic property. So the research says that um, in the clinical setting, the adverse consequences of anticholinergic treatments often go unchecked. And if they're taking more than one of these, like if, let's say they're taking two, maybe one to stop the diarrhea to stop the nausea, maybe one that's antihistamine, then they have a profound effect. You have this much greater, um, even more toxic level of these anticholinergic properties, and they could um, become a really negative complication. So that's the first thing. Good God. I'm just thinking that sums up like every kid on my caseload. Okay, wait. All right, hold on, folks. I have to spell this for you because just so you know, anti, A-N-T-I, 
And then mm-hmm. say this again because I have a hard time with multisyllabic words. Colin- sure. So cholinergic. So let's get C H O L I N E R G I C. Okay. All right. So anti-cholinergic. Oh, my stars. Okay. There it is. Thank you for spelling that because I know somebody else out there does a really good job with feeding and swallowing and also struggles with phonemic spelling like me. <laughs> so thank you. Okay. So that's the first, the first factor that we need to look for. Another thing about anticholinergics is when I first studied the negative effects, I thought, well, then why would anyone take these? But they're really important. For instance, if you need a bronchodilator, if your if your uh, passages in the lungs, the bronchi, if they have swelling and tissues going together, you can't get the airway. These bronchodilators are needed to open up those airways. But the same thing that blocks the the swelling and the inflammation also dries the mouth and and dries the secretions and, you know, does other things. So they are needed. And, and I'll talk about that a lot, you know, through the, through the rest of this talk of why every medication that has a good side also has a bad side and positions and the interprofessional team has to weigh is the good outweighing the bad. And so we kind of just have to keep it all into perspective. Okay. I can, I can keep it into perspective. I'm trying, I'm really hard, doing a hard job um, of keeping anxiety at bay over this topic. <laughs> All right. Perspective. I like that. Okay. So, so very many of our complex pediatric patients have GERD. Can we, yep. can we go into the GERD? Are you ready to switch into the sure. GERD? Okay. Because yes. there's, there's, I'm part of a, a listserv that's actually going into a, um, um, it's the international, it's a, it's a new board that's getting formed, but right now they have a Google group and they've been sharing all of the esophagan and the national esophagan um, position statements on the GERD medicines, but enlighten us about those PPIs and those H2RAs. Okay. So this could be like a three-hour talk all by itself. <laughs> and I'm going to try to hit the highlights, you know, that what we can cover in a little bit of time and still get to a few other meds as well. Okay. So PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, act, they do exactly what the name says. They bind, these meds will bind to and block the acid-producing pumps in the stomach. And so the short-term effects, just to hit that first, and then I'll talk um, some more about the individual meds, the short-term effects of most of the PPIs in children are headaches, diarrhea, constipation, and nausea. So that is helping them to be able to digest their food, but it's also giving some negative consequences of the nausea that that makes them not want to eat, of course. Who wants to eat when they're nauseous? The diarrhea, right? The constipation. So the whole GI tract has negative effects as well as, you know, being able to benefit from these PPIs. And and then more serious, that's just the normal side effects. Then there's more serious side effects. Uh, In some infants include respiratory tract infections that are common, especially lower respiratory tract infections. Um, And those children aged around 1 to 11 and then the side effects have more significant can be more significant to include more vomiting, more diarrhea, more abdominal pain, et cetera. 
So some of the examples of PC, uh, PPOs for treating GERD is the rebeprazole, which is the Acipex for children as young as age one. And then there's also the omeprazole um, or Prilosec. And that can be age one or older, but there's also the physician has to take into account, um, they have to be a certain body weight and all that kind of thing. Some studies have shown that the Prilosec or the omeprazole has been found uh, to lead to food aversion and gag reflex in the oral stage. But then when they studied those effects more specifically, they thought, well, that could have also been secondary to the reflex that they were treating. So they're not saying it caused the gag reflex. They just saw it frequently and maybe if the medication wasn't completely taken care of that. So they were still seeing food aversion and gag reflux. Okay. And then some PPIs for treating the esophageal erosion or, or erosive esophagitis is more of the, like the Nexium, the Ezimeprazole, um, same thing, or Protonix, the Pantoprazole. Um, the same kind of side effects, but with Nexium, um, uh, mesoprazole. We also see constipation, dry mouth, and drowsiness. And then with the uh, protonics, it's about the same as the, as the others, but it cannot be used according to the uh, regulations until a child is five or older. Um, so I'm going to talk about some short and uh, other short and long-term effects of those in a bit, but let's next go to the H2RA. So these, of course, are the histamine 2 receptor antagonists. So H2RAs, they're also referred to as H2 blockers. These act by reducing the histamine-induced gastric acid secretion and the pepsin output. Okay. The good news so, is, is there... Oh, go ahead. Can I... Okay, so the way I made it work in my head is that the PPIs tell the pumps to shush and turn off. And the H2RAs neutralize what's already out there. Pretty much. And the H2RAs are also helpful more in the evening before the child goes to sleep. And it's more effective in the evening. But the H2RAs are not as effective. And so we usually see no long-term effects of H2Rs because they're not given long-term mm -hmm. because they have something called tachyphylaxis. And that just means they have a decrease in response to every dose. So you need to give a greater and greater dose for the person to get the same effect. And eventually they get no effect from it at all, according it's to the manufacturers. So aren't those, aren't, um, I've seen a lot of, um, really amazing GIs put a kid on for 30 days and then off for 30 days, on for 30 days and then off for 30 days for the mm -hmm. H2RAs. That's right. kind of like what I've seen. That's why. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because after 30 days, they may have, it may not affect them at all. It may, you know, as well be a, a sugar pill or something because it's okay. not going to affect their system. Mm -hmm. And that's why they would take them off for a while. And when they put them back on, they see it start to work initially. And then it starts to lose more and more response with every dosage. So that the, these are the deans, right? Like the ranitidine. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So ranitidine is Zantac. The um, famotidine is the Pepsid. And the Semitidine is Tagamet. And those are the ones that are like bad choice makers right now, apparently, and getting pulled off the market, correct? The Zantact. Um, there are some significant side effects 
although again they're not given for very long since they stop working so they're not really being touted as bad because they their effectiveness keeps decreasing but the common side effects with the zantac for instance are headache pain gastroenteritis which really defeats the purpose somnolence <laughs> right and even pneumonia and more infections so you know there's a lot of side effects <laughs> It's kind of like when you see a commercial and it says, um, caution, this may cause death. You know, well, if that, <laughs> what are the advantages if, if the disadvantages are greater? Oh my God, that's great. Like, this will make you feel amazing for 20 minutes and then you'll die. <laughs> like, yes, you know, all yes. we can't, yeah. or it may not work for you at all. It may work for others. Oh <laughs> exactly. Okay. So. All of these meds, the PPIs and the H2RAs, are called the anti-secretory meds. It means it decreases uh, the acid secretions is kind of what that means. Um, use of these meds, especially the PPIs, which we do see more long-term for acid suppression, like if we're stopping the, the uh, production or we're trying to heal the existing erosion or we're trying to, you know, whatever at whatever level, we're trying to decrease those secretions. The problem is they interfere with the natural defenses against the gastric bacterial colonization. So the body has a lot of good bacteria that's fighting for you. And when you take these acid suppressants, um, which you may need because you're trying to stop the acid from, you know, preventing you from eating at all, well, then you're also decreasing the good bacteria colonization. It also can decrease protein digestion. It can trigger allergic sensitization to dietary peptides. So, and I'll talk more about what happens in the normal digestive system um, in a little bit, but just know that when we're suppressing the acid production, because let's say their body's producing too much or it's leaving the stomach going back up into the esophagus and through the lower esophageal sphincter, it's causing lots of crazy havoc. If we suppress that too much, then it really messes up the entire GI tract. It could lead to elevated gastrins in the blood. It could lead to carcinoid formations or cancers. It could definitely lead to vitamin B12 deficiency because those nutrients like B12 does not get absorbed into the bloodstream, into the system, because we need the acid, a small amount of acid, the right amount to, um, for help, to help us uh, absorb that. And it can lead to hypomagnesium, um, just a too low of magnesium. It could lead to atrophic gastritis, which is becomes very insidious and negative over time. What what is that? What is atrophic gastritis? Um, that's kind of where like the stomach starts to erode itself because it's not functioning properly. The lining, the mucosal lining, um, just this chronic gastritis. And then it can also lead to lower respiratory infections, pneumonia, like uh, acquired pneumonias. It can, of course, you probably, I think a lot of people recently read more just because there's more recent studies on reduced bone mineralization that leads to fractures once they get older. It could even lead to C. difficile colitis. So there's a lot of negative effects, especially long term. So as a result of all that, physicians have to consider 
what are the advantages of protecting from real tissue damage that could be life altering? Um, or, or, uh, and as well as healing existing mucosal damage against all these risks of decreased, um, you know, from decreased nutrient absorption to a uh, just a full inefficient GI tract all the way from the oral stage through the intestines. And then as a result, the recommended solutions are to first, let's all try the non-pharmacological measures. And this is where I love back to the interprofessional standpoint where we work with our PT and OT colleagues, nurses, physicians, everybody. PT and OT colleagues teach us a lot about, as well as, you know, we share with them, but if we work together, we learn a lot about uh, positioning, like the role of the what's going on with the uh, spine and the ribs and the, you know, the whole posturing status and how we could address a lot of things that way. And then when that doesn't help, because clearly that's not going to help all of our kids with, or even neonates and preterm babies, that's not going to fully solve the problem. When they do need to recommend the pharmacological measures, then all of the research says we have to use the minimum number of acid suppressant medicines at the lowest dose for the shortest period of time to minim- minimize both the rate and the severity of those adverse effects. Mm-hmm. So it's oh. kind of about that big picture. Two thoughts real quick, folks. When you see a child posturing, an infant posturing on the bottle, yes, most of us assume GERD first. However, we should also be sending, building on that interprofessional practice, we should also be sending them to the allergist while we're sending them to, for a GI consult because many of these infants actually have a dairy or soy allergy or intolerance. Yes. And sometimes the intolerance will present as posturing, emesis, vomit, the whole nine yards. So while we're, and, and that's one thing that's often stated is that we are as a society quicker to put them on the lowest dose of the H2RAs or the PPIs and then afterwards going, oh, but wait, it could be when in fact, it, if we eliminated the allergen first, it will naturally help. Um, so, and yeah. Let me share some other things about GERD because Every time I talk about meds, because meds by themselves can sound so horrible, they can sound like the culprit, the bad thing. But I also always like to say, let's not blame everything on the meds Mm -hmm. and let's look at the holistic picture. Um, You know, in this case, it could be of the preterm baby or of the Mm -hmm. infant or or the young child of everything else that's going on. So the med itself may not be what's stopping those hunger cues. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Um, to fully understand why that child may not want to eat and how they may not be getting hunger cues as children without GERD get. So even if they weren't on any meds, if they have GERD, they're not going to be getting hunger cues like they would if they did not have GERD. So picture this, a normal gastrointestinal system without GERD releases just the right amount and just the most perfect timing of enzymes and acids at all levels throughout the entire digestive tract, through the colon. And that's what normal digestion looks like. So if somebody has that, they have normal hunger cues. They cry when they're hungry, or they, if they're older, they ask to eat. Um, they look forward to eating. 
and they, you know, desire to eat. But if they have GERD, they could be experiencing reflux, nausea, vomiting, retching, you know, their little body's retching as they're throwing up, or pain either during or after they eat. So that's what happened to you every time you ate. Would you want to eat? So no. Yes. Yeah, so that's like and, us getting food poisoning and not yes. wanting to go back to that restaurant. Yes. So their little body responds by developing this initial reaction to food. Like that was bad. If I smell this, I'm go- I don't want that. Um, or if somebody approaches me with a bottle or with something, I don't want that. So they have this negative association with food. And they also may interpret hunger signals as nausea or pain. It's, it's kind of like that Pavlovian thing. You know, once every time they got hungry, they were given food and they immediately um, felt pain or nausea. So now that they're getting hunger cues, they're perceiving those as pain or nausea. And then children with sensory integration difficulties or sensory defensiveness could experience the GI discomfort with even greater internal distress. So they could often appear to have this sensory memory of esophagitis or reflux or general discomfort, even after the problem has been resolved. So like you've treated it, you've addressed it, it's good, but they don't want to go there anymore because of this sensory memory. And because the memory associated with food and discomfort is so strong, then some children may continue to fear that taking anything by mouth could be painful or have bad results. But the adult who may be the parent or the therapist or the nurse may only see external signs of vomiting. That may be the only time that you know. Mm-hmm. You don't know when they're feeling nauseous or uh, they can't tell you. They, you don't know when they're feeling this internal pain. Um, maybe you're not recognizing that um, because of, uh, lots of other things are going on. Um, they may just have some reflux that they can sense and feel, but you, you know it's hard to interpret that until it's more severe. Also, they could have, it's the same child with GERD could have a delayed gastric emptying time where food stays mm-hmm. in the stomach for hours. It doesn't pass readily into the intestines. A typical meal should be of, of a child without um, significant GERD. And and I also should say that every um, infant, or, or not every, but most, some studies even say 70% of all infants have some degree of GERD, although it may still be considered normal, like a happy spitter or something. And that's we we've actually covered that folks a lot of times it's the underdevelopment or the um innervation of, it's the enteric nerve system of the gi track yeah so yes. and and what happens is that it the enteric nerve system the nerve system of the gi track is not fully developed until a child is full term plus three to four months so the reason why we see the most spit up around month three or four for a typically developing child that does not have GERD, they're the quote unquote happy spitters. It's the storm before the calm. It's the nerve system literally working out all the kinks in the esophagus and the stomach. And sometimes a byproduct of that is a spark, a misfire, a little bit of spit up, and then they move on, truck along, and then go on about their business. But that's that's just the nerve system finishing development. We get right. under the misinformation and misguidance that when a baby is full term, they come out fully developed. They're not. It's just that if they were to actually cook the additional three months in utero, we as a species would have died off. They never would have made it through our pelvic floor. So they're more like full term around month three or four after 
being born full term. And let's be honest, most of us working in our worlds, we typically don't see full term typically developing babies. So, sorry, squirrel, big squirrel, passionate oh, squirrel. On that my one's heart. good, though. That one's good, though. And some of the studies even say that at age one, we may still see like 20 to 40 percent with GERD just from the fact that they're still developing, um, especially if they were preterm, for instance. So anyway, they could some children with GERD have a delayed gastric emptying time. And if they do, their the last meal that they had could still be in their stomach three to four hours later. And we're expecting, you know, with the. If they didn't have it, they would be ready to eat after two hours. Uh, another thing is constipation. So that happens, um, of course, when food residents are not propelled effectively through the intestines because of an ineffective, inefficient GI system. And it gives them a feeling of fullness and generalized discomfort for longer periods of time. And then that also contributes to mild nausea, feelings of malaise and fatigue, a general lack of interest in eating. So that's another thing we see. And then um, the last thing with GERD before we go to the next question is children with GERD could also be taking other meds. And we could see that similar effects from other medications um, like it, that, for instance, may cause constipation, like those for muscle relaxation or seizures. And that could include baclofen, Depakote, Clonopin, Tegridol, Dilantin, and Valium. And if they are experiencing side effects from these meds, they may be even more disinterested in eating or really want to avoid food because it brings them even more discomfort. So that's the last thing on that question. You just summed up a kid that I see. I've got this kiddo that has feeding tube dependency, trauma, a rare genetic condition, had to have um, the feeding tube placed not due to um, aspiration, but due to uh, overall motor planning and um, just general discoordination and endurance. Like it was taking longer to take food in due to the motor planning. Like you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I suspected delayed gastric emptying and was shot down, shot down, shot down. Finally, we got a second opinion from GI. And the reason we had so much emesis was delayed gastric emptying. And um, overall, when they actually went in and did the imaging, the size of the stomach was so small uh, that the baby couldn't take in the to even the targeted volume. So they had to end up changing feeds around, going to overnight feeds, slowing the rate just to get calories met. And here we are so many months later right. and all these combinations, we have zero desire, total PO aversions with every trial. And I told the family, we just need time. And to segue to the next question, the baby started having febrile seizures. Mm. So they started on phenobarbital. Oh, I'm telling you, it was the highest dose of phenobarbital I have ever seen a kid on. And I... I questioned why and was shot down, shot down, shot down. I'm like, the kid's still having febrile seizures on the phenobarbital. Like, maybe we should look at a more holistic approach. Like, because, mm -hmm. um, you know, there was some jerks. There were some things like, what about the ketogenic diet? What about CBD oil? What, like, this is like the big, bad, ugly, ugly drug, you know? And um, they're now tapering. So I'm interested to see what the next few weeks and months bring with the eradication of phenobarbital, but we're still on, God help me, is it 
Aripad. Am I pronouncing that right for the GI motility? Um, I think the medication was Aripad, but I could be mispronouncing that. Okay, but squirrel. Okay. So again, we could talk all day on GERD and I kind of have a notion maybe to see if I could sweet talk you into coming back later this spring just to do one on GERD. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot. But um, we do have to go into the uglier ones, the seizure medications, because Mm -hmm. Capra, Onfi, Delantin, talk to me about those because... Um, I remember one neurologist explaining it to me. I can't just tell one cranial nerve to shush. If I tell one, I tell right. all of them to shush. And then in walks the SLP or the OT. And we're like, hey, take a bite. It's cool. It's delicious. And the kid has zero desire. So go team. Enlighten us, friend. <laughs> well, so the antiepileptics work by just decreasing the membrane excitability. And then they, that can increase the postsynaptic inhibition, or it could kind of just alter um, the synchronization of all the neural networks to help decrease the excessive neuronal excitability that we see with seizures. And so the common side effects in general of most of the uh, anti-epileptics are the uh, slowed motor and psychomotor speed. So we see that affecting the just any motor abilities to include eating and um, and the voluntary and involuntary motor components of swallowing. And we also see more uh, decreased attention and mild memory impairment. And those can affect just across the board different things that we're trying to teach. But unlike adults who have uh, seizures and are on anti-epileptics, the cognitive side effects in children is happening at the time that they should be normally developing those cognitive and psychosocial skills. And the treatment decisions that are made in childhood usually have lifelong implications. They're not taken off of these meds. They need them to decrease the seizures. And then we see a lot of studies of the people who started these meds as children and what they become as adults and their difficulty with jobs and with functioning um, you know, memory attention and all of that, uh, lower high school graduates, college graduates, all of that. Um, anyway, so the greatest concern of cognitive side effects uh, that leads into being able to sequence steps and, and learn new s- strategies is a newer generation of the anti-epileptics called Topamax or the topiramates, and that's for children aged uh, 6 to 15. The cognitive side effects of these kids are found to be called slightly worse overall than all the others. Uh, That's interesting research. Yeah, slightly worse overall than those taking the older uh, and more known medications. Specifically, they had more verbal memory problems, including more word-finding difficulties, more fluency issues, and to a small degree. This is executive functioning. Exactly. Um, and then the Zonogran is kind of like Topamax, only to a smaller degree. That's also being questioned. Um, the uh, Zonisamide is the generic name, although there's less studies on that. But we are seeing somnolence, anorexia, dizziness, ataxia, agitation or irritability, difficulty with memory and concentration with the Zonogram. And Topamax so is also given for migraines, right? Uh, yes, I believe so. Because mm-hmm. I have a dear friend whose son has seizures 
he has a genetic condition and um, autism spectrum disorders, but he was starting with migraines and they were, they put him on Topamax and he was, I didn't think old enough to take Topamax and, and they put him on it and it's. What, what is his age about like? Um, elementary um well now or? he's 15 and he oh, okay. was, I think he got put on when he was 13. Okay. But like I and Michelle Ann thought Topamax was like an adult thing, not for, wow. I wonder yes. if, oh, I'm so calling her. At much lower dosages, of course, but yep. And, and that's considered a newer anti-epileptic because it was not given, uh, you know, maybe it was probably started in the last five to 10 years, maybe. Yeah. Oh, so the next one are the phenobarbitals that you mentioned and the benzodiazepines. So we'll kind of class those together. These before these newer, uh, anti-epileptics like the Topamax, these were considered to be the greatest risk of cognitive side effects and they still are high risk. Um, they have, displayed IQ declines and while the IQs may improve a little bit after it's discontinued there seems to be long-term achievement effects um, even when they, they were discontinued and tested three to five years later they still had uh, more long-term effects and that suggested a complex interaction of the anti-epileptics with developmental maturation because they were supposed to be in the process of developing at the time that they were taking those which that limited how they could develop. So concerns exist that using such antiepileptics with cognitive side effects could result in more significant impairment um, over extended periods of time. And then next are other common antiepileptics, the uh, Tegridol, Dilantin, Depakon, I'll just go over their brand names, it's easier to say. But the side effects of those include modest psychomotor slowing, so all of the things you need motor skills for was seen at a, um, a modest effect and decreased attention and memory. And then in the studies, they also cited quality of life and memory were affected as well. I think we're mostly concerned about the psychomotor slowing because we need that skill in so many things that we teach, including um, the swallowing function. And then kind of maybe a little bit better news is Keppra. Um, it is associated with reports of some irritability and aggression, but it seemed to have, among um, the more recent studies, a favorable cognitive side effect pro profile. Uh, in a study they did with kids on the aut with autism, autism on the spectrum, Keppra had beneficial effects on attention, hyperactivity, and mood instability. It helped to of bring that together. So unlike other anti-epileptics, Keppra was not associated with a change in EEG test or visually evoked potential parameters. So that seemed to be a little more promising. And then Onvi was not, was used in other countries, was not approved in the U.S. until 2011. Mm -hmm. Children on um, this called um, Clobazam, how I pronounce it, or Omphi, had similar neuropsychological profiles as the Tegridol or the Dilantin after one year of treatment, with the exception of one test psychomotor processing speed of the Whiskar coding. 
The cognitive effects could not be determined because the negative cognitive effects associated with the antiepileptic treatment could have been offset by performance improvement from giving the same test over and over. But the common side effects of ONFI included fever, lethargy or sleepiness, drooling, um, increased saliva, and constipation. So those affected the GI system as well. well and then on a related I'm just saying, drooling and you have a fever and lethargy, perfect time for so hungry. Right, exactly. (laughs) And then on a related note about this drug class, there's a few other things to know about medications for hyperactivity or seizures, and some, um, you know, may take both. Medications also seen to have a side effect of reduced appetite or anorexia included Ritalin, Prozac, Depakote, and Clonopin. And then other meds for muscle relaxation and seizures that had effects of nausea and vomiting were Valium, Baclofen, Dilantin, Depakote, Clonopin, and Tegridol. So that's it for the seizure discussion part of this brief talk. Okay. All right. So two to add, mm-hmm. Dilantin. Uh-huh. I remember this one. It can cause mucositis. It can cause a breakdown of the mucosal lining of the right. oral tissues. Mm-hmm. And um, and it also can cause, um, help me out here, gingival hyperplasia. Am mm-hmm. I saying that right? Yeah. So if you see somebody where their gums look like they may have false teeth or something, or um, they've had significant kind of gum work, or it just looks... Uh, kind of different a lot of times you can quickly say yep they're on dilantin you can yes just, mm-hmm. okay so ladies and gents that are listening if you're on these medications not only are you going to have difficulties with the psychomotor properties or planning out po intake if you're on something like dilantin when these infants are teething And remember, like a tooth erupts through the gum line, right? And that can cause inflammation irritability. So then the gum line reacts by swelling because what happens when something's irritated, our body swells, right? That's how we get granulomas. That's how we get blisters when we wear those killer high heels on date night, right? So the tooth breaks through, the gum swells back over that sucker, and then it breaks through again. With gingival hyperplasia, it keeps swelling. And then the well-meaning therapist is like, oh, here's a pacifier if it's like working on non-nutritive suck or nutritive suck, or here's the bottle or, all right. Now, my other thought is, and I didn't ask you about this one, but Sabril, um, Sabril is a really nasty seizure medication that I've seen for my kiddos that have infantile spasm disorder, also known as the catastrophic seizure disorder or known as West syndrome. And folks, please go check out the Epilepsy Foundation page. The Epilepsy Foundation page has so much information on these medications that Lisa has educated us about, and they have um, cutting edge technology and resources, but Sabral, y'all, you get two weeks on this drug and then they take you off if they don't see a change in your seizure management because what happens is that it causes cortical vision impairments because it eats away at the optic nerve and the occipital lobe. And I don't remember what part of the occipital lobe, but I just know like it deteriorates it. So what happens is that they lose their, um, they get tunnel vision until they get no vision. And I've had kids that Sabral was the drug that worked to stop the spasms. And it's not like we're saying like, I mean, you can't do these drugs. These kids need these medications to stop the seizures or the spasms because big picture, those will cause more neurologic damage 
than the side effects of these drugs have on their PO intake. So, I mean, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, but it's which devil do you dance with, you know? Um, but it does behoove us to understand how this impacts their planning and the overall PO intake, because we need to be able to relay that and communicate that with, especially when the mama has the breakdown, because y'all, the mom's going to have the breakdown. She will sit with you or you will sit with her in her living room and she will cry. Why will they just not eat anymore? And you got to be able to understand the, how do you say this? The pharmacological reason? Is that the right. correct terminology? That's correct. The, pharma mm -hmm. the pharmacological reason why. So pull out the tissue, let the Irish leak, but then give them the science as to why. And that also gives hope because some of these kids don't have to be on these medications forever. It's just through, get them through the hump. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Squirrel number two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very important. Oh my I love you. This is Lisa. You're like so delightfully nerdy. It's just wonderful <laughs> for my soul. Thank you. Okay. All right. So I have to move us on because we have like 10 minutes and I have at least two more questions. I know. Um, I know. Okay. So I've had, I've treated several patients that have cardiopulmonary stuff. And I've wondered if any of these classifications of medicines, um, such as those treating like um, congenital um, heart defects, um, congestive heart failures, um, PDAs, um, persistent ductus arteriosus, layman's terms, the hole in the heart, or cystic fibrosis, or just asthma. Can those meds, and I'm sure that they do, how does it impact their swallowing and motility? Well, this, this is, again, is, I taught one eight-hour course just on cardiopulmonary. Oh, so. my God. Where did you so teach that? Of, I want to see that. Highlights. Um, some is for my own company, uh, or the company I work for called Select Rehab and for nursing home people. But I also teach quite a bit for home CEU or okay. um, it's also called 360 CEU or whatever. Um, and I'm working on like a three hour course, two or three hours, just on some of this pediatric med stuff as well. But anyway, um, okay, well, gonna... I want to recruit you to ours. Come, come do it for speech therapy PD, because my goodness, woman, we need this there. <laughs> okay. So there's about 10 different significant drug classes and lots of meds within those drug classes, you know, whether it's the, um, the ACE inhibitors or the beta blockers or whatever. There's a lot of those that could be prescribed to a child with cardiac disease. So let's just look at a few of them in our last few minutes. Um, that's once it's more common and that we have to re be really careful to monitor. The first is digoxin. So when I um, did some research with a cardiac nurse, um, I worked with a critical cardiac care guy and he said, they all call it DIG. So I said, okay, I'll call it DIG too. But, but digoxin, that just basically helps the heart to beat stronger and slower. So it allows the heart to pump more blood and oxygen to the body that we um, need that to happen. It could be used to treat faster regular heartbeats like atrial flutter or supraventricular tachycardia, you know, the fast heartbeat, or to treat I was ready to say, that's super fast, right? I know. <laughs> I know. So the side effects that we should be concerned about is if they're taken digoxin, which they may need for their heart to pump, uh, the blood to get to the body is nausea, diarrhea, drowsiness, and dizziness. And if an infant is taken digoxin, 
there, uh, what we would see if there's too much of a level, because if there's a fine line between having just enough and too much. So if they're getting a little too much with an infant, they would have cardiac arrhythmias. If they're older, let's say, you know, one or two or older, then they would have a slower heartbeat, dizziness, pale skin, extreme weakness, loss of appetite, vomiting, diarrhea, changes in vision, all of that. So those are things we need to look for with the Joxin. And then uh, just know that the levels should be carefully monitored by labs or physicians, nurses, etc. And then diuretics like Lasix, furosemide is commonly prescribed, helps to reduce the fluid overload in acute and chronic disease like heart failure, renal failure, could also be used uh, with pulmonary or kidney diseases. And if they stay within the recommended dose, you know, not too high, again, it's very, very fine line, they usually are generally well tolerated, especially in older um, children, but high dose therapy could produce excessive diuresis, which could result in hypotension. So the blood pressure drops too low, dehydration, they could be at risk for vascular clot formation. And they have to be carefully monitored through labs as well, because they um, should be monitored for signs of basically electrolyte um, imbalances where they their sodium, calcium, magnesium, potassium, any of those could go too low or they could go into metabolic alkalosis where there's too much acid in the blood. So um, there's a lot of risk with diuretics. It, so they have to be monitored and there could be a lot of secondary issues there. With a PDA, the patent ductus arteriosus, that's basically, you know, like you were saying, the whole, they need surgical repair usually. But yeah. if they are infants, they are not they're not ready for surgical repair yet. And so for infants, um, especially if they are preterm, um, they need NSAIDs. The, the um, NSAIDs block the hormone-like chemicals in the body that keep that duct open, but they will not close a duct or help to close it if the baby is full-term or if they're young children. The most common side effects of NSAIDs on these kids are stomach aches, heartburn, and nausea. So we're going back to the GERD. It's yet GERD. another reason they'll have the GERD. They may also, uh, NSAIDs could also irritate the stomach lining, minimize gastrointestinal um, effects. And if they are getting NSAID, they have to be given with food. So if they have GERD and it's difficult to take food, then you're going to further irritate the lining of the stomach if you give the NSAID without food already in their stomach. So okay, that's- hold that thought. Mm-hmm. The um, baby, y'all, our babies that have Down syndrome, I always assume because, I mean, let's be honest, those of us that work in home health, we do not get access to the medical records until I am verbally told otherwise by um, a member of their medical team, I assume that that infant has a PDA because of the increasingly high prevalence of PDAs in our population that have oh, Down wow. syndrome. So um, until you are taught otherwise, please assume because you're going to need to closely monitor that. Um, yep. So sorry, because I mean, they're already at risk for GERD management issues, but I mean, yeah, just, all right. Sorry. Squirrel number three. <laughs> Okay, and then for cystic fibrosis, a couple of things on this because I know we're kind of running out of time. Um, yes. There's a lot of meds to treat to treat the person with cystic fibrosis. Can include pancreatic enzyme supplements, multivitamins, particularly the ones that are fat soluble, mucolytics to drive the secretions, antibiotics, including the inhaled oral or parenteral 
the bronchodilators, which I want to talk about, the anti-inflammatory agents, the CFTRs, which I'll talk about those a little bit as well. Um, that's what we see. So with the bronchodilators, with these, again, that's your anticholinergic, that it opens up the airway, but we have those anticholinergic effects. We also see a rapid heartbeat, headache and dizziness, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, anxiety. They could also even have a skin rash or hives. And we can see nervousness or a tremor, like when their little hands get shaky, um, because it's um, it kind of just makes them feel like they're hyper inside of their body because of these bronchodilators. Also, we should only, if the child is crying and you're trying to give them a bronchodilator inhaler, it will not get to the lungs effectively because they're crying, screaming out and they're Shallow not taking breathing. that. Yes, they're not taking that yeah. to breathe in. And so it's not <laughs> going to be effective if you give a bronchodilator while they're crying. I'm just imagining some mom somewhere trying to hog tie. Yeah. Where are you going to take this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so then here's a really interesting point that, and I've, um, I love to collaborate with my friends who are working with the preterm neonatal babies. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day and she was sharing that. And, you know, I've looked up the whole article and all the research uh, on this note, but babies who are born preterm, let's say 34, 35 weeks, their brains are not developed, right? So their brainstem mm -hmm. is not yet developed enough to send the signal to them to breathe. Um, for their mm -hmm. heart to work and all those things that are supposed to happen involuntarily, the brainstem cannot send those signals yet. So what are they given in an IV to help um, stimulate that signal? Caffeine. They're given a little bit of caffeine in the IV. Now, what do you think that does to the lower esophageal sphincter? It relaxes it, it opens it, and it increases the amount of GERD. But again, as physicians, as healthcare workers, as you know, all of our team members, we have to think, what do we do to keep the baby or the child alive? And then we'll deal with all the other effects, you know, that we first have to do what we have to do, right? And so that lower esophageal sphincter opens or relaxes and it increases the GERD that we're dealing with. And then the last couple of things is the um, Ivacaptor, I don't even know how to say that, and the um, Tezacaptor. These are two things that are used to treat the cystic fibrosis. So the Ivacaptor is a CFTR, so it's a conductance, no, it's a cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator, CFTR, that alters the activity. But the side effects of these are upper respiratory tract infections, headache, stomach yeah. pain, nausea, diarrhea, dizziness, joint or muscle pain, and cold symptoms where they're sneezing, stuffy nose, coughing, sore throat, all of that. And then, but it's helpful for age six and older. And then the... Um, Tezacaptor or the Simdico that is often used concurrently with the if Ivacaptor, the Calideco, is also six and older. And the side effects of this is headache, nausea, sinus congestion, dizziness. So those two are kind of working to amplify each other's negative effects. This one cannot be taken with most seizure meds. Um, many antibiotics are uh, not cannot be taken with it. They would have a drug to drug interaction or St. John's wort. And so that kind of brings me to make sure that you're very aware of any mother who said, oh, it's just natural. I'm also giving them drops of this or drops of that. And because um, it would help. So that's significant. They could yes. have reactions. 
I have so many parents that are like, oh, yeah, we're just giving them a little CBD oil. And I'm like, wait, what? You can't just know give that. a little yeah. CBD oil because, like, I mean, some of that stuff's not quite so purified as you think that it is. And we and don't there like everything to be high. Yes, there can be drug-to-drug interaction. So if you must yeah. give them something that you bought somewhere – then we need to take them off of something else that could have a fatal drug-to-drug interaction if they're taking those two things. And or natural oils. Some of, right. right. Yes. Yes. And and some of the probiotics that people give now. So, yes, all the – oh, my gosh. Okay, you said one word that I needed help. It was something –